Sometimes people ask me, you know, is, is church planting hard? And what I tell them is, not if you do what we do, which is plagiarize the content from our sending church. So, for example, we just finished up a wonderful series in Proverbs. <laughs> We're about to get into the uh, fruit of the Spirit. John's laughing, but he's picking up his phone, and he's like, okay, wait, are they doing that for real? So my name is Chipper, and one of the uh, pastors of City Church, a church plant in Gainesville. As Kyle said, many people from EVF, or I guess there are eight of us told that moved down to Gainesville to be a part of that. It's one of three church plants that EVF has been a part of sending. Uh, two others are um, in existence, one in Rogers Park, of course, and then one in the uh, Twin Cities area of Minnesota. We are sort of the, the baby but hopefully EVF will send out a bunch more people to be a part of church plants in the coming years. So I know they're thinking and praying about that already. As far as an update for our church plant, we meet as small groups right now. We call them community groups there in Gainesville. And in our city church orbit, there's probably around 50-ish people right now, 55 Somewhere People are traveling, so it's actually somewhat difficult to get a, a realistic headcount at the moment. But we've been very encouraged by the buy-in of our launch team, the group of people that you know, came into the church from the start um, to help us get started. And um, the one thing that we could really use prayer for, though, is it has actually been a very, um, for many people, it's been a very heavy season, a lot of personal tragedy a lot of uh, just extremely difficult circumstances. A week ago, our first couple that um, was supposed to be giving birth to um, a child miscarried, and that was a blow not only to them, but obviously to the team. It would have been the first child you know, born into the life of City Church. So um, there has been a good amount of that. And it, I'm not the kind of guy that looks for the devil under every rock, but I do feel like there is a certain amount of uh, spiritual attack on what we're doing in Gainesville. I wouldn't doubt it. Satan does not like to see new churches, believe it or not. Um, but we are encouraged. God is clearly at work, and we feel very confident that the Lord has called us to be there. And we get, I feel like, the appropriate amount of confirmation to keep us going and to keep us excited. So the message this morning is from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Acts 2, 14 through 41 it's called Purposeful Proclaimers, Our Method and Our Message. And one of the core values at City Church is purposeful. We want to be a purposeful church. We don't just want to be faithfully present in our community, but we actually want to proclaim the gospel. We want people to know what it means to follow Jesus and impress people to actually follow him. And part of that means we proclaim the gospel In recent years, it has been, I guess, especially this year, it feels like it's been pretty popular in the media to bash millennials. And those are people born roughly between the years of 1980 and 2000. For example, I don't know if you get Time magazine, but you might have seen an article on May 20th. Uh, the May 20th, 2013 cover story of Time magazine was entitled The Me, Me, Me Generation. And it dealt with the narcissism of millennials. And this guy named Matt Bores, an editor editorial cartoonist, he recently picked up on this trend in a piece that he wrote for CNN. 
And he was particularly troubled by a quote in Time magazine in that article that read, not only do millennials lack the empathy that allows them to feel concerned for others, but they even have trouble intellectually understanding others' points of view. As a qualifying millennial, I say, ouch. That feels like a diss, but then again, I can't really understand the point of the view of the article. And so I agree with Matt that some of the dumping on millennials, as he argues in his article, is misguided or overstated. I hope it is. But there is a troubling trend, though, that is prompting some fascinating discussion that I actually agree is troubling, and that is the, the millennial gap in churches. Why is it that millennials, in particular, are just not attending churches like the other generations in America? And that discussion is promoting some very interesting questions and, and critiques. People are asking, why is there this gap? We want to know, why, why is there this trend? And interestingly, there is another article on CNN about a week ago or so on this topic, why millennials are leaving the church. And then there is an article um, in the Washington Post that kind of had some counterpoints, and then there's been a bunch of bloggers that have written all about it. So just in the past couple of weeks, there's been a lot of people asking the question, why are millennials leaving the church? What's the go? And there's, what's the deal? And there's all kinds of ideas being expressed. And so people are asking, you know, in order to reach millennials, do churches need to be edgier? Do they need to be uh, just more artistic, more traditional? And so what they're really asking is, does a particular context affect the way that we proclaim Christ to people at all. If, if millennials are leaving, does that mean the church is somehow not being culturally or contextually relevant to that generation of people? And then the larger question becomes, if we're going to do certain things to millennials, of course, should we be doing certain things to reach other groups of people, empty nesters, seniors, single parents, And should church in Evanston look different than church in Rogers Park because you have different kinds of people living there? And 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 if so, how? So I've seen a lot of people asking those questions. They're, They're methodology questions, essentially. How do we get at the gospel so that we're, quote unquote, reaching different kinds of people? And then there's another question that's being asked in light of the methodology question is, what actually is the gospel? I mean, what, when we're presenting Christ to people, what do we need to say? You know, are there like some points that we have to say every time we present Christ? Are there themes that need to be um, present in a legitimate gospel presentation? And the reality is people do explain the gospel differently. And I'm talking about Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians explain the gospel differently sometimes. So we want to know, what is the gospel? And by the way, I would plug a book. There's a very short book on this topic called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Um, I'm going to be pulling a few things from his book to kind of supplement what I'm saying this morning. But I would recommend you look at that book by Greg Gilbert, What is the Gospel? But we want to know, what is the gospel? So we want to know, how do we kind of get at the gospel? What's our methodology? And then we want to know, what is the actual message? And as I was thinking about those questions, Jason kind of gave me a blank slate. He said, preach on whatever you want to preach on. I said, I want to preach on this. I think this is a big deal. And so the Lord was really just putting Acts 2 in my heart because I think Peter 
really deals with these kinds of things, at least indirectly, in this passage we're about to read this morning. So we're going to look at Acts 2, verses 14 through 41. And we're going to, what we're going to see is that the, the method of our gospel proclamation and the message we proclaim are, in fact, sensitive to our context. But sensitivity does not mean that we back away from the heart of the gospel or subvert it in any fashion. So there is sensitivity, but we don't subvert the gospel. So we're going to look at Peter's method and gospel message in his Pentecost sermon as described in this passage, and we're going to consider how what, you know, basically how what Peter did instructs us, if at all, today. And before we read the passage, I want to give you a little context so you kind of know where we are since we're just kind of jumping into the book of Acts here. Um, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended into heaven, and he left the disciples uh, kind of to fend for themselves. You'll remember, they're like, oh, what do we do? But he was gone, and then, bam, they're, they're on. And if you'll recall, uh, Jesus said in John sixteen seven, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And it turns out that Jesus wasn't kidding when he said that in John because he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1 and boom, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. And you know what? The Holy Spirit comes and makes quite the entrance. If you read the beginning of Acts chapter 2, I encourage you to do that. If you look at verses 1 through 13, the entrance was stunning and it was polarizing. I mean, there's like rushing wind and, and people were speaking and different tongues, and so some people were in awe, and they were like, my goodness, this is amazing, the Holy Spirit has come, and then some people were mocking those affected by the Holy Spirit. In fact, they claimed that those people were drunk. They were drunk. So some people were in awe, and some thought the 120 people in the upper room that were affected by the Holy Spirit in this way were just wasted. So it was a polarizing entrance by the Holy Spirit. And it's in the in light of this um, coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that Peter stands among the disciples and delivers this epic gospel message that he directs to the men of Judea and those who dwell in Jerusalem. So that's when our passage kicks in. Peter is getting up and he's going to speak. So let's start at verse 14. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were, about, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's a powerful message and a powerful result. And again, this morning we are going to look at Peter's method and gospel message as described in this passage and how they instruct us Today, So let's take a look first at the method. So let's look at Peter's method and how that method might be instructive. And I want to point you to three aspects of Peter's method. Three aspects of Peter's methodology. First aspect is this. Peter was aware of his context and spoke accordingly. He spoke the language of his context. He was aware of his context and spoke accordingly. He spoke the language of his context. And first of all, there's an immediate contextual issue, right, that Peter needs to deal with. And it's the fact that he and the disciples he's standing among are being openly mocked. It's not a good situation to start your preaching in. If you're being openly... Imagine all of you sort of mocking me and then me kind of trotting up here to give a message. So Peter has to address that scenario. And what does he do? Well... You'll see in verse 15 that Peter actually says, these people aren't drunk, it's only, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. So he diffuses the situation with a little bit of humor and a little bit of a, a zinger, so to speak. So he's aware of that immediate contextual issue, but then he's just as aware of the broader contextual issue. And that the most important part of that is he's speaking to 
what was for sure a Jewish audience. So by and large, they would have known and treasured the Old Testament scriptures. So when Peter gives his message, what does he do? Well, he does this. He speaks in terms that his audience would understand and be familiar with. And the terms that he spoke in primarily were Old Testament scripture references. You saw a number of them in the passage that we just read. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament, so what does Peter do? He goes to the Old Testament. Three examples of that. We're going to talk about these more later, but you see Peter's reference to Joel 2. You see Peter's reference to Psalm 16, and then you see Peter's reference to Psalm 110. Three references to the Old Testament. This is scripture that his audience would have been familiar with. So he addressed the context. He spoke in terms and in language that people would have understood. And the second thing is that Peter was aware of the contextual issues that affected the plausibility of his message and addressed those and addressed those directly. He was aware of the contextual issues that affected the plausibility of his message and he addressed those issues directly. So he didn't just quote Old Testament scripture. He didn't just quote stuff at his audience. Instead, he had to show his audience the true meaning of the passages, a meaning that the audience hadn't fully grasped. For example, in Acts 2, 29-36, Peter realized, if you look at those verses, that many would think Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 referred to King David himself or maybe some other unknown, mysterious figure. So Peter had to dispel that notion and show them, as we'll see a little bit later, that those passages actually refer to Jesus. And he did so by arguing rationally. So Peter grows, goes to very great lengths to prove rationally to his Jewish audience um, that their own scriptures testify to the ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus, and the subsequent pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So he speaks in terms that they would have understood, and he says, actually, your stuff points to what's happening right now. So he was aware of his context, he was aware of plausibility issues, and then the third aspect is that Peter was just darn bold. That's part of his methodology. Peter was bold. He knew he was going to ruffle some feathers, folks. He knew he was going to ruffle some feathers, but he did it anyway for the sake of clearly teaching the gospel. How bold was Peter? How bold was this guy? Well, he didn't mind telling everyone that they misunderstood important Old Testament passages that was not going to be popular. He didn't mind just saying, nope, you didn't get this one, in that one, or that one. And then he didn't mind blaming the people listening to him for crucifying the Messiah. And we see that twice in Acts 2, verse 23, and then again in verse 36. And you know what else? He didn't mind preaching an exclusive gospel. He didn't mind preaching an exclusive gospel. In verse 38, we see Peter saying, after audiences asking, what should we do about what you've just told us? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So Peter lays it on thick. He is extremely bold. So when we look at these three aspects of his method, we see that the purpose of Peter's methodology 
was to help people understand his message, to understand what he was talking about. He was sensitive to the context, and this is extremely important. He was sensitive to the context that he was in for the sake of helping people understand what he was saying, but not for the sake of popularity or for the sake of not stepping on toes. We get ourselves into the weeds when we think about our context in the terms of how can we be more well-liked and better appreciated. Helpful thinking about the context is all about how can I help these people understand this message that I am bringing to them from the Scriptures. That's how we should think about context, and Peter demonstrates that with his methodology. So that's Peter's method. So what about our method applied? How do we apply Peter's teaching and Peter's example? So we, as purposeful proclaimers, as people that want to tell others about Jesus, we need to address immediate contextual issues when we're having conversations with people. We need to be able to have the ability and the foresight to address contextual issues. Are there, are there physical, are there emotional, are there situational issues that are going to get in the way of us clearly presenting the gospel to people that might hinder attentiveness when we're talking to people about Christ? So we should be aware of our surroundings. I mean, it's that simple. Peter was aware of his surroundings. He figured, okay, oh boy, we got people mocking us. I better, do, I better address that. So we need to be aware of our surroundings. And just a couple of contemporary examples. Okay, first of all, say for example, there's this, there's this woman that you're trying to minister to. Maybe she's in your apartment complex. You've been praying for her for a number of years, and all of a sudden, her uh, tragically, for example, her husband passes away. It would be very tempting in that moment to be like, yes, now I get to come in with the gospel. Boom, pow. Yes, but what do we need to address in the present? The fact that she is grieving and horrified and in need of someone to sit next to her and love her, listen to her, and address the physical and emotional needs that she is dealing with as well. Do we want to bring the gospel into that situation at some point? Especially if you've been praying for this woman for years and years, absolutely, yes, you do. But there are contextual issues that we have to be aware of. Or for example, when, um, when I go to the uh, gym in Gainesville, it is just not socially acceptable in my gym, I'm not saying this is true for everybody's gym, but it's not socially acceptable in the gym where I go to have extended conversations with guys who are busy pumping iron. And most of the guys have iPods in anyway in their, in their own world, and so it's just difficult. So what, what do I try to do? I try to have brief conversations um, when I can, you know, maybe I need a spot. I never need a spot, but no, when I, when I need a spot, you know, I, ask, I try to ask someone you don't know and just have a brief conversation, but I, I realize that I'm going to need to try to um, engage this guy in a different context because the environment is just not conducive for me to really having a deep conversation about Christ. This, This stuff is kind of intuitive, but I think we need to talk about it. There's some immediate contextual things we need to be aware of, and then there's broader contextual issues. You know, the person that you're talking to or the audience that you're speaking to, I mean, what what is his or her background? And what about their background, you know, culture, geographic location, age, family history, language? 
what about that kind of stuff will hinder or help them understand what you are saying about the gospel? And keep in mind that some contextual issues can be at the same time both a help and a hindrance in different ways. I mean, Peter had to, um, he had this Old Testament context that he could rely on, but he also had to correct misconceptions. So sometimes the same thing can be both a hindrance and a help in different ways. And so we have to be aware of our own contextual issues. And then, of course, there are plausibility issues that we need to be aware of as well. So, for example, a contemporary issue in Evanston. In Evanston, the exclusivity of the gospel is just not popular here, right? It's not popular anywhere, but it's really not popular in Evanston, in my experience, and having lived in some different places, you know? It's not popular. In fact, being exclusive is seen as, of course, it's being intolerant. It's seen as being really unloving. So the challenge we have in sharing Christ here in Evanston is to engage the reality that many, if not most people, believe that it is not plausible to be exclusive and loving. That is a plausibility issue that is going to get in the way of our gospel presentations. So we need to think about how to address that question as we share the gospel. We need to press into what people mean by love. What is love? You know, where does your notion of love come from? Why is it unloving to be exclusive? Those are questions we should be asking. We should be having conversations about that. And then hopefully at some point we could talk about how God is love. And we need to be especially careful, by the way, speaking of plausibility, that we are loving others indeed. Our words and our actions should work together. I think, this is a major I think, by the way, no statistics to back this up, but experientially, I think one of the biggest reasons people that were born in, from the 80s to 2000, the millennials, I think one of the biggest reasons they're not going to church is because many of them have absolutely been scorched by the church. So when you're having a conversation with someone in kind of that millennial camp, you can assume you're not starting at neutral with them. You're probably starting at minus 10. There's a really good chance they've had a terrible experience with a Christian or a church, or they have a friend that's had a terrible experience with a Christian or a church, and you see where this is going. So it's really important that we not only have conversations, but we are serving and loving sacrificially, even people that are not in this church body. And of course... We've got to be bold. We've got to be bold. We talked about this. The purpose of understanding our context is not to be well-liked and popular, but we understand our context so that we can help people understand our gospel message. And it means that even though we are contextually sensitive, we're still bold. We're still proclaiming the gospel, and we're still honest about it. Contextualization is really, to me, about being hospitable. It's, being about, it's about being hospitable so people can understand the message that you are bringing their way. So that's a look at our methodology. And by the way, this isn't going to exhaust every issue, every question. You can take whole classes on things like contextualization, but this is just a little bit of a, let's, let's find something biblical that we can build on as we try to engage these conversations that people are having and as we try to answer questions that are being asked. Let's, let's take a look at our message, our message. First, let's look at Peter's message. It's a doozy. 
And actually, the argument that he makes in this passage is kind of difficult to follow, honestly. I'm going to do my best to walk you through this argument. And really what we need to do in order to understand Peter's sermon is we need to understand the key progression of three main Old Testament texts. We need to understand the progression of Joel 2 to Psalm 16 to Psalm 110. That's the progression in the passage, and so we will use that same progression. Let's start with Joel 2. In Joel 2, it's quoted in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. And there we find in this reference to Joel that Peter argues these events that you're seeing at Pentecost, including these 120 people being, being filled with the Holy Spirit and people speaking in tongues, all of that was clearly prophesied in Joel. Verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, Peter says that's happening. You see what's happening? That's happening right now. And in verse 17, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Well, there's men and women among these disciples that are prophesying. They're speaking in tongues. And, and Peter is saying, hello, you see that this is happening. And your, your texts prophesied to this event. And by the way, there's more prophecy in the Joel 2 quotation than Peter includes um, in his argument. But he's not saying that everything in Joel 2 that has been predicted is happening. He's just saying that some of the things in your text are happening right now. At Pentecost, and he makes those arguments that I just mentioned. And then the main point, though, that Peter is really making is that since the events of Joel 2 are happening, as they have been prophesied, it also means that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, as we see in verse 21. It sort of makes that verse a reality. He's saying, okay, these events are happening. And so what that means is we've got to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So the fulfillment of Joel 2 is a sign that we have to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. So then the question is, who is this Lord? Who is this Lord? That's an important question at this point that we must call upon for salvation. Enter verses 22 through 24 and the reference to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. In verses 22 through 24, we see Peter arguing that the Lord we need to call on, the Lord we need to call on in order to be saved, is in fact Jesus. And let me read, starting in verse 22 through 24, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he's saying, that that Lord in Joel 2, that is the Jesus that you just crucified. It's the Jesus that you just crucified. And then in Acts 2, verses 25 through 28, Peter quotes Psalm 16 directly, a psalm that is attributed to David, and a psalm that the Jews in the audience would have, thought, would have been very familiar with, but as we discussed earlier, they thought that David referred to himself throughout this psalm, or somebody, definitely not Jesus. That's what they thought. But guess what? Peter says, nope, this psalm... Psalm 16, that's actually 
a reference to Jesus. And then he makes the argument that you see in those verses. He says, these references to Hades and the Holy One in verse 27, they, they can't refer to David because his body, his physical body, saw the kind of corruption that this psalm is saying that person isn't going to experience. So that rules out David. David can't be the person that that passage is referring to. And then Peter goes on to say in verse 33 that this Jesus, this Jesus prophesied by David is in fact the reference of this passage. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And it's this Jesus who is pouring out the promised Holy Spirit right now. So to summarize the argument so far, which is complex, I recognize, Peter is saying this crazy speaking in tongues and the rushing winds that you've seen, that was authoritatively and sovereignly planned by God. And you've seen the prophetic attestation to it in your own scriptures, which you're familiar with, namely in Joel. And given that these predicted events are now happening, Based on what else we see in Joel, we can be completely certain that we need saving and must call upon the Lord. And on top of that, the Lord you need to call upon is the Jesus you just crucified. So you thought your rebellion might have been bad before. Well, check this out. You just crucified the Son of God sent to save you from your rebellion. But this Jesus was raised from the dead, and we are all witnesses of it. His body did not see corruption He was not abandoned to Hades, as the psalm attests to. And now now he is pouring out this promised Holy Spirit that you are seeing poured out in your midst, that some of you are mocking. That's the argument so far. And then we get to this reference to Psalm 110. This reference to Psalm 110. And here Peter quotes Psalm 110 in verses 34 and 35 of Acts 2. And Peter says, basically, you might have thought that the person exalted at the right hand of God was David, but it's not David because his physical body had, it didn't ascend into the heavens. His physical body didn't. Rather, the highly exalted person in Psalm 110 is Jesus. It's Jesus. He's a highly exalted person. So he emphatically states in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this Jesus, the one you crucified, has been raised. And as he pours out the promised Holy Spirit, he is also sitting in judgment over the nations while his enemies are made into his footstool. Serious bummer for the audience. Think about this. You crucified the Messiah... Your own scriptures prophesied to this. And now he's sitting exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And his enemies are being made into his footstool. So the main message summarized once again. So Peter is saying, this is his message as he progresses through these three texts. This pouring out of the Spirit was planned by God. And now it's happening. And it means that we must call on the Lord to be saved. And this Lord is none other than Jesus whom you crucified, so we really messed up here. And now Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he's sitting there in judgment over the nations as his enemies are being made into his 
footstool. So how does the audience respond to this message? A bold message, contextually sensitive, but very offensive, by the way. How does the audience respond? Verse 37, obviously the Lord was at work because in the, in the midst of this offensiveness, you see that when they heard, in verse 37, this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter responds in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so that's Acts 2, 14 through 41 in a very condensed nutshell, a difficult argument to follow, but that's the argument. So what we need to do in order to sort of learn from Peter about how we should present the gospel message is to kind of pull some themes from this? Are there themes that are transferable to how we might proclaim the gospel today? And the answer to that question is, um, yep, there definitely are themes. They're transferable. And here are the themes. There's four of them. There's four themes. Theme number one is authority. God has all of it. God has all of it, and he sovereignly in control. In verses 16 through 21, Peter is arguing, look, the things that God declares come to pass. These things are happening just as God said they would because he's got the authority. In Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up for the crucifixion according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's in control. Acts 2.24 and 32, God raised Jesus from the dead, man crucified, but even death is no match for God because God's got the authority. So we see in Peter's message that God reigns over all things. He is in control, and nothing, not even the death of his son, was outside of his grasp. And as the Jewish audience would have been keenly aware of, God in his authority calls his people to live obediently in accordance with his statutes. So God's got the authority. We see this in Peter's message. Theme two, rebellion. We human beings, every one of us, has rebelled against God's authority. And you do see rebellion in Peter's message. Acts 2, 23 and 36. Jesus, the Son of God, you crucified him. If that's not rebellion, nothing is rebellion. The greatest act of rebellion in all of human history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, 38 we see that everyone has sinned against God. And how do we see this? We see this because Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. We wouldn't need forgiving if there wasn't a rebellion against this authoritative God. We need forgiveness because we've rebelled. In Acts 2.40, Peter exhorts the audience by saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Why is the generation crooked? Because it's rebelled. And then theme three, theme three I just called Jesus. Now I wish, I wish we could unpack this at greater length and talk more about uh, Jesus' work on the cross. But the theme we see here is death couldn't hold the Savior of the world down. Death couldn't hold the Savior of the world 
down. Acts 2.21, Peter, quoting Joel, tells a crowd that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because of the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who had just ascended into heaven. He goes on to explain that this Lord is in fact Jesus, the one whom death couldn't hold down, seated at the right hand of God. So the question should be, how might we receive the benefits of this Savior, the salvation, that we might no longer be enemies of God, that he's making into a footstool? Many Peter in Peter's day were cut to the heart and asked, what should we do? What should we do about our predicament? And then we have theme four, which is this. It's repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. Those in the crowd were cut to the heart and asked, theme four, repentance and belief, what should we do? And Peter responded in Acts 2, 38 and 39, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So we see that salvation is through repentant faith, and salvation is available to all. He's saying, what do you want to do about it? You've seen that God has the authority. You've seen that you've rebelled. You've seen that Jesus, the Messiah, who saves you, crucified him. What do you do? Repent and believe. So four themes emerge. God's authority, our rebellion, Jesus, then repentance, belief, faith. Here's a crazy thing. If we look through Scripture... We see that those four themes emerge everywhere. Sometimes the themes are elaborated upon, and sometimes the four themes are squeezed into just a couple of verses. But you see these same four themes everywhere in Scripture. So no matter the sensitivity to the context, these four themes always emerge. They are at the heart of the gospel. And there's a ton of places you can look. We don't have time to do that, but they always emerge in Scripture, no matter the audience, no matter the season. So writers, they wrote to different people at different times and in different places, but these themes kept coming. For example, look at Romans 1 through 4 as Paul writes to Rome. Those themes are there loud and clear. So our gospel message has to include these four themes. It it, it doesn't matter who we are and, and where we're proclaiming the good news of the gospel. These themes have to emerge. They have to emerge. They can't be downplayed. They can't be glossed over. They can't be ignored. You know, we might have different points of emphasis based on who we're talking to. There might be different entry points to talking about the gospel. So to those affected by racial discord, we might emphasize Christ the reconciler. You know, to those who are affected by war and hatred, we might emphasize Christ the peacemaker. To those who have ruined their lives with alcoholism, In workaholism, we might emphasize Christ the Redeemer. To those in captivity, we might emphasize Christ the Rescuer. But the gospel message itself stays the same. These four themes always emerge. They always emerge. And just as a a reminder, let the text speak for itself. That's where the power is. That's where the power is. Let's not be so clever that we don't refer to this book. Reference it. Memorize it. Be sensitive to a context, but it doesn't mean we ever cover up God's word or these core foundational themes 
of the gospel. We can't discuss every question this morning about method and methodology and, and what our message is, but I hope this gives you some material to build on. It's, it's possible, I'm telling you, it's possible to balance sensitivity to a context and truthfulness. It's completely possible to do that. But it takes prayer and discernment, and this is why Paul prayed, of course, in Philippians 1.9, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And remember, too, God's grace as you seek to become a more contextually sensitive yet truthful gospel proclaimer that God uses inadequate people on his mission. Peter, the one who just gave this message, was perhaps the most inadequate of all of the twelve Judas notwithstanding. Peter, the guy that denied Jesus three times. Peter, the guy that said, no, Jesus, you really don't have to die. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, the guy that Paul had to confront in Paul's ministry when Peter started to slide away from some of the major tenets of the gospel. Essentially, Peter overplayed his context and Paul had to get in his face. God uses those kinds of people by his grace. And of course, as we close, I just want to encourage you, if you do not trust in Jesus as your Savior, consider these themes this morning, these four themes. They are available to all people. And I would hope that at least one person here this morning would consider anew the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust him for salvation. Let's pray together, and as we pray, I believe the ushers are going to um, come down to start the offering. Lord, thank you for this time. Uh, Thank you for the love that you have demonstrated through sending your Son. I pray for those who do not know Jesus, that they would give their lives to him and follow him. And I pray, Lord, for discernment. I pray that we might be able to speak into our context in a way that is clear. It does not compromise the power of the gospel. We love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.